Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Well, welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. I'm joined by Ramesh Raghavan, Board Director, Investment Advisor in Singapore. Ramesh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Graham. Pleasure to be on the show. Well, it's fantastic to have you here. We've got a lot to talk about your journey from India to Singapore, as well as the projects you're involved in. So you're in a very exciting space being based in Singapore. A lot has changed, even in the last five or six years. And your work with Bansi, which is obviously, you know, one of the key names in the Asian angel investor scene. So we'll talk about that as well. A lot to unpack in the next 45 minutes. I'm fascinated by this one fact about your background, Ramesh, and you helped me put this into context. You started out as an agricultural commodities trader, correct? Yeah, that's right. I used to, when I started my job with a company called uh, Britannia Industries, which was part of a company called Nabisco Commodities in those Mm. days. National Biscuit. Which was one of the, uh, uh, Britannia actually was a cookie, uh, as a biscuit company in, in India, which was owned by Nabisco. And there was a major um, M&A transaction that happened, and Nabisco sold it to Danone. But funnily enough, uh, commodity trading for uh, Britannia was the most profitable activity, contrary to selling branded cookies in India. Right. So I, I started off in there. I mean, there was no, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I didn't have any specific background in commodities or anything like that. I originally was an engineer. Then I did a master's in international trade. So it kind of landed in there. But then immediately I moved on to, after a year, I moved to PepsiCo in Delhi. And uh, PepsiCo had just come to India in 1991. Uh, This was a time when India had pretty much gone bust. I'm not sure whether you're aware that in 1991, the rupee collapsed by about 50%. And the country was basically bankrupt. And when Pepsi had come into India, they had come into with a massive obligation, which said that... um, for every $1 that PepsiCo spent on buying the concentrate to make the drink, we needed to generate $5 in exports. Wow. So they said that, I mean, PepsiCo, uh, the, you know, when Coke left India in the 1970s, you know, they had a bad reputation. Um, and then uh, there was major hue and cry when PepsiCo was let into India because PepsiCo came in with a massive uh, investment proposal, which was uh, to develop the agricultural product space across uh, a state called Punjab. We were setting up mm. factories uh, for making potato chips, tomato paste. Uh, and we came in as a food company, not as a beverage company. In beverage was kind of uh, something that we wanted to sneak in slowly and steadily because there was no concept of uh, what do you call as a... Uh, uh, drinking Coke or any carbonated beverage uh, in, as a replacement for water. We did have a massive competition those days by a company called, uh, it, it, they had brands called Thumbs Up. I'm not sure if yeah, you were. Yeah, yeah. I know Thumbs Up. That was very popular, right? Yeah. Coke became about four or five years later and they bought uh, Thumbs Up anyway. So so I was in the exports function and my job was to generate that $5 for every dollar the company spent mm. on <laughs> selling uh, on uh, buying the concentrate. So I went in, you know, we traded each and everything that was possible under the earth, like from soybean meal, groundnut meal, rice. Uh, um, I don't know if you're aware of a product called psyllium husk. 
Mm. Uh, anything under the earth that was agricultural product we were selling across um, the globe. So effectively, that was a big uh, revenue generator for the firm, simply because we, we we were forced to do that by the government those days. Then suddenly, after mm. three years, uh, I think after two and a half years, the government turned back and said, hey, you know what? We don't want you to do this easy business of trading in commodities. We want you to uh, get involved in selling branded made in India products. So I moved briefly into uh, a branded business, which was selling fruit juices. So it was a very complicated project where we imported tomato fruit juice, fruit pulp from um, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, took it all the way to Holland, mixed it there, brought it back to India. Then we just kept it in India in a bottler and shipped it all the way to the U.S. under the brand called Seasons Harvest. So it was one of those... um, government-inspired make-in-India product for branding Indian products. So I was with them. So it was a very fascinating project in the sense that, um, you know, never before have one-way fruit juice bottles traveled 15,000 miles to be geography. Around the earth, exactly. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. It's fascinating, though, that early start for you. You said you were an engineer going into that space and you were going into probably what was quite an uncharted territory. So a lot of the the business challenges you were talking about, like you had to ship it to Holland or ship it back from, or you had to get all the different component parts from all over Southeast Asia. How did that sort of fit in with your engineer training? Did you have to kind of readjust? Because I can imagine an engineer was trained to focus on a specific problem within a box whereas you were having to constantly think outside of that box. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I think the, the, the thing with an engineer training is that I think you understand few things, which is, uh, I think the most basic thing is that you can only control one output with the many inputs at any point of time. So it was kind of a way of saying that if, if my final destination is X, how do I mix all the other inputs, A, B, C, D, E, to get to the destination X? Mm-hmm. So it was more of a, what I call, uh, it gives you a, a way of being methodical about uh, how you get about doing stuff. So I think it's process oriented, less about the, um, uh, the destination, more about how do you get into the process so that it will lead to the destination. Um, mm-hmm. So it was more of that, I think, less of, and by the way, actually, I was more, uh, you know, while I did engineering, I was more interested in the commercial aspect of things uh, um, mm-hmm. you know most of the people in India tend to do engineering because their parents force them to do engineering it's not because exactly. of, uh, <laughs> it's not because of their passion and because that was the only one that got you a job right right you know all my friends and my relatives were engineers so my parents used they used to put me under constant pressure saying that if you don't have an engineering degree you will never get a job in your life yeah and given that my father came from civil service at that point of time. And um, so that, I think that is the background. But my, I was more uh, while, while I was uh, while I was involved in uh, so commodity trading. I mean, I think I had a kind of a, an aptitude for things in that particular space uh, as well. So it kind of uh, fell through. And during those years, while I was in commodity trading, I actually used to dabble in stocks a lot. Mm. This was the go-go years in the stock market in India, and. Um, I developed a massive passion for stocks and stuff like that. And um, after about, you know, I, I used to travel a lot to the U.S. Uh, for the distribution business, uh, for the fruit juice, etc. But at some point of time, uh, 
I decided that I need to stick with my passion. And uh, fortunately, you know, I, I was lucky in the initial period of the stock market boom in India where uh, I got out just before a big scam hit India in 1993 called the Harshad Mehta scam. I don't know if you're aware of it. Mm-hmm. Basically, things fell 50%. I was just lucky because I had to sell my shares to buy a car. Right. And uh, it was it was a first uh, it was a first exit. And I just got lucky. Right. That's the only time in history buying a car was a good investment. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then, uh, but, you know, I was always fascinated by, um, you know, stocks and things which were financial instruments. And then I, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of thought about what should I do because that was my passion. And then I tried to find roles in the, uh, in the financial services industry, but everybody said, Hey, you're in commodity trading. They're different from financial services. And, you know, mm-hmm. it was this, uh, classic situation of uh, us people normally think if you spend three four years in a particular business you can't replicate the same thing in any other business which right. i totally disagree because the skill sets are the same in many of these things exactly and um, so i decided to figure out a way to get over this and um, so i kind of uh, quit uh, pepsi and decided to go to business school in the uk i went to london business school there's where I decided that, look, uh, I don't care what it is. My objective was very simple to get into financial services. And I thought, OK, if I'm not getting something on shore in India, I'm going to try the roundabout way of getting there. So um, I, the funny thing is that when I went to business school, I was looking for jobs. Everybody from PepsiCo to Coke, all the FMCG companies were willing to give me a job. But... Mm. Uh, Nobody in financial services, simply because they said, hey, you know, you spent so many years in FMCG, in commodities, why didn't you come and uh, join us? But it was not my objective. So um, I probably applied during my summer to apply to about, I would say, nearly about 500 to 600 companies. And then I got lucky. The 601st company was a company called Pictay Asset Management, which is a Geneva-based private banking outfit. I don't know if you've heard of them. Pictay, they're, they're quite a big. They're the large, they're one of the last of the few private banks. So they were launching an India fund. And uh, they said, hey, why don't you come and join us? So effectively, uh, uh, it was called a, a, a prize for being persuasive and sticking it till the end, mm-hmm. you know, after applying to 600 odd companies. Exactly. Um, so during the summer I, I worked, uh, they were launching an India emerging market fund and I got involved with them and uh, I pretty much worked through most of the time uh, over the summer and beyond because when I went to the UK, I, it, it, financially it was tough. But then um, after, that, after that particular period, um, I got over uh, when I was looking for a, full-time job, all the financial services companies were willing to give me a job. It was quite funny, just mm. because I spent about three months with Pictet. <laughs> so to cut the long story short, uh, post my MBA, I joined uh, Morgan Stanley. And the reason I think uh, I got the job at that point of time, because uh, for a change, I was one of the few guys, because I used to spend a lot of time on uh, working on options and derivatives during business school. I did some work, etc. cetera. So for so whatever reason, the person who was interviewing me and a bunch of others got interested in me. So they, so I was supposed to be joining in New York. So I go to New York, uh, I think October or November, I get a message from my boss saying, the whole of the derivatives team in Morgan Stanley in Hong Kong has disappeared to NatWest. You pack up your bags and go to Hong Kong. That's it. Wow. <laughs> That's obvious. That's how I landed in Hong Kong. <laughs> you know? And uh, 
so I moved to Hong Kong on uh, in December 1997. I remember it was like December 1st or something like that. And mm. um, and from then on, it was Hong Kong all through till 2009, where I actually moved to Singapore in uh, 2007, although I was doing a one year Monday to Friday Singapore, Hong Kong uh, before I moved to Singapore. And uh, all through my career in Morgan Stanley, I was involved in everything to do with hedge funds, right from uh, uh, all kinds of strategies, right from risk up to special situations to distress to, you know, um, uh, because I was one of the few guys who fought, was fortunate to understand derivatives much better than a lot of people on the desk. Uh, they asked me to basically set up a full service hedge fund activity. And simply because in 2003 was the first time when the hedge fund bubble started in Hong Kong, when everybody from the U.S. to Europe were moving to Hong Kong to set up the business. And it was a great, fascinating time those days where uh, business was booming, et cetera, et cetera. So and then I moved to Singapore um, to set up the business here. And then we were there until the business collapsed when our stock price hit five dollars. I don't know if you remember during the crisis. We were, Morgan Stanley was a bust company at one point of time before the Japanese came into, to uh, the Mitsubishi guys came in to save us. And then um, so, uh, a couple of my bosses were all moving to RBS at that point of time. So we all, so I and a few others moved to RBS. Then 2012, uh, no, we, we bought, we got a, we, we, RBS had at that point of time had gone bust and got, survived the bust after buying AB and AMRO at the top. So we, uh, RBS is more of a fixed income co- uh, business model, less of an equity, equity, derivative business model. So we started the equity, equity, derivative business there. And in 2012, uh, they decided to get, get rid of the Asian business to CIMB. And at that point of time, I made a call that, look, after spending uh, 16 odd years from 5 a.m. to 7 p.m., I needed to just take a time check on my lifestyle and mm-hmm. <laughs> do something totally different. But the good thing is that those days I used to be involved with a uh, few startups in the fintech space, specifically in terms of trading platforms, etc. And then uh, so effectively post 2012, uh, I had only one objective was to get involved in the venture capital startup space in Asia. And I did start a angel investing platform where you know, it's called it was called Tenchi Peak Ventures, and uh, with another partner of mine, and uh, we invested about uh, close to about uh, ten, twelve companies. Uh, so I was in the ecosystem across the. I was involved in the ecosystem across uh, from. I've been involved in the system since 2012, but I also wanted to figure out what is a real startup ecosystem looks like. So I went to Israel. Hmm. Uh, I spent close to a. Um, close to three to four weeks there. And uh, I wanted to understand why does Israel tick and what is it that we can do to bring some of the learnings from the Israeli ecosystem into Singapore um, and in Asia. And it was a very fascinating experience because I've never been to Israel before. And um, uh, So what did you actually do for those three to four weeks? How did you get that hands-on information? Uh, yeah, one of the purposes of going to Israel was um, actually we to to bring Israeli companies to Asia mm. for helping in their expansion into Asia Pacific. Because normally Israeli companies are very focused on USA because you know it's there's a natural affinity for Israeli uh, companies to be involved with the USA. They look at USA as their natural market. 
and um, uh, what we what we basically said to uh, people there is that while USA is a natural market, you know, this is a population of you know half the population of the world is in this part of the world, yeah. and USA should be looking at this part of the world for uh, for uh, scaling up rather than looking at USA where the competition is uh, intense. So the reason we went is also that we wanted to bring. So we organized. We were organizing a conference at INSEAD. Uh, I don't think anybody else organized before. This was in 2013. We brought about 15 companies from uh, Israel in the artificial intelligence, big data technology, um, analytics, and uh, e-commerce space to Singapore for a conference. Where you know we we organized a conference. It was probably the first conference of Israeli companies coming from Israel into uh, Singapore, uh, not only just for uh, looking for partnerships uh, with uh, partners in Asia, but also for looking at raising capital. So when we went there, we actually saw about, I would say we saw about 300 odd companies. And we interacted with several officials, the universities, the uh, trade authorities, the um, the scientific organizations. So we kind of went uh, we in between. We did do a few days of tourism in Jerusalem, you know, <laughs> as a as a as a as a side uh, activity. But that said, uh, for us, it was more about how the ecosystem works. What kind of startups are there? Where is the value in the startups there? What makes them tick? And, you know, that kind of stuff. And you will hardly find in Israel 20-year-old entrepreneurs. Most of the entrepreneurs in Israel are in the 30s or late mm. 20s. You'll never find a Zuckerberg in Israel. You'll always find somebody who is a 30-year-old, a 30, you know, 30. Most of these guys have come from, have spent significant amount of time in the military, Right. and have identified a problem area where they can use the uh, military technology or the learnings developed in the military for commercial purposes and see how they can use them for making a business. So that's where most of the successful Israeli startups have come from, where people have spent significant amount of time in the military space and use the learnings to convert their learnings to a significant problem-solving activity in the mm. commercial arena. So uh, that was a, that was the basic objective of um, going to Israel. So we brought about 10, 12 companies. We had a big event here. We raised capital for two or three. But what I noticed was that is that culturally, it's it's actually a tough proposition for Southeast Asians or Asians to deal with Israeli startups in terms of the way they think, the way Asians think. There's a lot of cultural differences. And mm -hmm. um, part of the process of investing or getting into partnerships with many of them is managing the cultural divide. And it's not easy for many of them to bridge the divide in a short period of time. I'll put it that way. Right? In what way? What way are they... Different. How is it difficult for a Southeast Asian startup to deal with an Israeli startup? What's the sort of the, where do they not meet? I think I think the the way it is that Israeli startups are you know the individuals are very focused on outcomes are very and are very outcome driven, whereas Asian right. startups are not overtly outcome driven, but they're very process driven and they're much more you know it is like a you need a feel good factor, right? And the and the language of communication always sounds as if, you know, the Israeli startups are much more 
blunt right. compared to what a Southeast Asian startup can be. You know, it's a, it's a very cultural thing. Uh, it's not it's not an it, it's not any negative connotation. It is just the way culturally how Asians behave in terms of uh, trying to give face to each other at negotiations. Whereas in in Israel, it seems less of a process of face being given to your partners. It's more of uh, how to solve a problem rather than looking at the psychological process of solving the problem. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a very cultural thing, and I think one of the challenges for Southeast Asia or even for Israeli startups to expand in this part of the world is how do they manage the cultural divide of how you look at things, how do you do business, and you know how you solve problems. I think that's, that's one of the key issues for, for startups that expand from different geographies to the geography in this part of the world. So when you, when you go to Israel and you spend time or you spend time with Israeli startups at INSEAD, can you then extract some of that learning and, and implant that into Asia. If it's a lot, if it's cultural in terms of difference, that's going to be pretty hard to teach generations of entrepreneurs how to think, isn't it? What can you actually take from the success of Israel? And what did you take and help Asian startups with? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the cultural part is while it's, I think the most important thing for Israeli startups is to have an Asian senior Asian person as a front face of the business. I think that's a very important part of uh, dealing with Southeast Asia. So you need somebody who understands not just the business part of it, but also just understands how to handle um, psychologically as well as culturally the uh, the business dealings in this part of Asia. I think from a technology perspective, Israel is far superior. There's no doubt about it, right? Take any technology, uh, whether it is uh, big data analytics, the technology that comes out is quite uh, uh, state of the art. But translation of the technology to a customer experience and Bringing in customers, you need people who understand that part of the equation here. And it's better for Israeli startups to bring in people who have got significant Asian experience in business rather than trying to get somebody from uh, from Israel or any other part of the world. I think that's probably the key. And for Asian startups, it's more of uh, how can you leverage some of these technologies these guys are bringing to their business models to effectively go through the process of customer acquisition much faster than would be the case in the normal scheme of thing. So I think it's a blend of, there is no right or wrong answers to this. It's just a fact that um, when you're doing business in this part of the world, you need to understand how business is done here. And similarly, like if somebody needs to do business in Israel, they need to have somebody who understands the Israeli way of doing things uh, for any business to be done. So I mean, Israel is much more outcome driven, whereas I think in Asia it's less, it's outcome driven, but it is not overt. It is not, it is, it's much more of a dating process, which goes over a long period of time, you know? Mm, exactly. I mean, it's fascinating, these differences between ecosystems. And I know working in Bansi as well, you must have a lot of exposure to ecosystems all over Asia. And e- even in the time that you've been in Singapore, things have moved at a pace I mean, for those outside of Asia, I think this is possibly the hardest part to understand is just how fast things are changing in Asia. I mean, everybody knows about China as an example, but even in Southeast Asia, things are changing at a pace. What are you seeing on a day-to-day basis happening in the startup ecosystems around Asia or things that interest you, excite you, that maybe people outside of Asia haven't really sort of gotten hold of yet in terms of an idea I mean, one of the big subjects we talk a lot about on the podcast is the Greater Bay in China. Yeah. 
not a lot of people outside of Asia have even heard of the Greater Bay. Sure. That's an example. Do you do you feel the same sort of things about Southeast Asia that, you know, sometimes people outside of the region don't really know what's going on? Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, it's uh, uh, because Southeast Asia is what I call, you know, an agglomeration of different Chinas, you know, in a way, in a sense that uh, this, uh, when you talk about the Greater Bay, this is a Greater Bay of... Uh, of different countries, not different regions, right? Mm. And the way I look at Southeast Asia is, you know, we, we, the biggest advantage, fortunately, for Southeast Asia is the so-called, what I call the demographic profile, right? Uh, as you mm. mentioned in some of your broadcasts as well, that, look, you know, you've got nearly about uh, within three to four hours of traveling from Singapore, you've got access to nearly about a, a billion and a half people, right? Right from India all the way to uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, etc. And while the numbers look very good, uh, each market is obviously different in some ways. But the most common thing that I would say is that in all these markets, at this point of time of the startup cycle, there is a huge opportunity for what I call as frugal innovation. Mm -hmm. What I mean from a frugal innovation is that, look, if you can sell something in Asia which solves simple problems of life, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's you know, um, you know, e-commerce or you know, water or power, etc., if you can make small changes to some of the big technologies that are out there in the West and just tweak it so that you make it cheaper, there is always going to be a market here. You're not going to find a market for the next best thing that has happened in the, in the valley in the U.S., but you will always find a market for bringing the next best thing and tweak it in such a way that it solves the day-to-day -day problems of people in this part of the world. So what I call a frugal innovation. So if you can sell something for a – if somebody has been selling it for a dollar and you're going to sell it for 10 cents, there will be a market. But the challenge with this market is that – it effectively boils down to a volume game in the B2C space rather than a price game. And uh, that is not going to change for some time, but it will change in some time in 10 to 15 years time when income levels go up and when uh, personal disposable income goes up, the uh, aspirations go up. And uh, at some point of time, technology challenges will merge across Southeast Asia, India, and the rest of the world. So, at this point of the game, it's still more about frugal innovation. And in terms of B2B or if it corporates getting involved in innovation, I find that corporates, while they want to get involved in innovation, they do you know, uh, get involved in some ways. For example, in Singapore, you'll find that a lot of accelerators which are being managed by corporates with the help of service providers, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that it is a genuine corporate strategy or is it um, a way of just participating in the ecosystem and PR. figuring out if anything is going to happen and see if anything mm -hmm. happens and then see if it's worth putting the dollar in into that system, right? Um, and for, for example, in Singapore, or you know, uh, Southeast Asia, you know, you obviously have a significant amount of players. But in my experience, there is an inherent... Uh, challenge in the in the in the corporate innovation space simply because see most of the corporates at this point of time in their life cycle in Asia they want to protect their margins when I say when they protect the margins they're milking the cash cow in terms of the inefficiencies in the business it's very hard for a CEO 
to milk the cash cow and then say that I'm not going to milk the cash cow from tomorrow because it's going to have a direct impact on my shareholder value. Mm. And uh, so these challenges are there from a management point of view and from a corporate strategy point of view. But from the ability, the, the market is still not yet, from a corporate perspective, ready for bringing in big time, big ticket innovations to this part of the world and incorporate it as part of the strategy, simply because they're still having a good time trying to uh, milk the cash cow. And it's, a, mm. it, it's not a problem that is normally associated with, uh, I think, more developed countries because there the ecosystem is much more advanced and here the income levels are much lower and uh, the regulatory systems are much more still in favorable of the incumbents. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take, for example, you know, if you take fintech, for example, while it's all nice to say, you know, we are doing this, we are doing that, we are doing this. But at the end of the day, at this point of time, they are all very small. They don't contribute really to the bottom lines at this point of time. Right. And uh, the only way you can make it a bottom line contributing factor is if you shake up the system significantly that you will see a small reduction in shareholder value over the next three to four years before it things start picking up again. Mm. So it's a chicken and egg story. A corporate innovation sounds good, but you know, in terms of actually doing it, helping startups which come out with innovative technologies to be incorporated into your system effectively means you are going to affect your revenue pool or cost pool, mm. which innately goes against the system of corporates wherein you want to milk the cow until it dies, right? I mean, it's, there's a, there is a dichotomy out there, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for example, I've had a number of experiences where I had to take some very interesting technologies in the fintech space to some financial institutions and, um, uh, and to convert from a prototype activity, a pilot activity to something real in an organization, the lead time is really long. Yeah. And uh, not because the people are not interested, because people are trying to figure out within their ecosystem, how does it affect their business, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that innately creates a conflict on how fast interesting technologies can be used in the B2B space without creating a conflict within the ecosystem of these corporates. So um, I think Asia is still slightly far behind, unlike the US. I mean, every year I do spend about a, you know, a couple of two or three weeks in the Silicon Valley as well, just to understand what is going on, more as a learning story, what is happening, what's new, you know, what are the interesting things. And when I do speak to senior uh, people in the corporate space, they say that, look, you know, their innovation at least is, taken as something key for the business. So the amount of money they spend on bringing in innovation programs in in the U.S. appears to be on anecdotal evidence much, much more higher than what is in this part of of the world. Mm. Especially if you look at Asia, right? I mean, if you look at the history of Asia, most of the people in Asia made their money by digging under the ground or in real estate, right? Right. If you look at post the financial crisis, you know, you no longer could dig under the ground and get rich. The whole commodity cycle went away. Real estate also took a beating. It didn't take a significant beating, but it took a beating. But uh, most of the significant people who made their wealth in uh, mining and real estate, they are getting into that stage where they have figured out that the next stage of wealth creation is not going to be in digging under the ground or real estate. Unlikely that you will see massive super or normal returns in that space. 
So what's happening that I've noticed, though, is that uh, the younger generation, the the kids of these uh, really wealthy individuals, they are more keen on getting involved in this space of bringing new technologies to Asia and uh, figuring out how you can create the next level of wealth while protecting what you have. I think that's where the opportunity is, is where you have all these billionaires in Asia. They give much more room for the kids to experiment Mm. new age technologies that can be brought to this part of the world. That will create the next generation of wealth, but it's going to take some time simply because the present generation are they are still kind of wary of handing over all their wealth to their kids <laughs> so i think that's the challenge that uh, they have to go through can we also talk a little bit about wealth creation in terms of you know like the the top down approach that asia takes in many aspects to building startup ecosystems because singapore being a good example that city has changed so rapidly in the last 20 years, 30 years. I mean, it started off in manufacturing, went into electronics services, and now startups is obviously a big aspect of the government strategy. Now they're trying to promote startups in a very top-down way, which, I mean, if you go to Silicon Valley, it would be very unfamiliar and sort of like what they would call like the bottom-up approach to startup ecosystem building. I mean, China being very much a top-down approach as well. Sure. Does that work? I mean, does that top-down approach build sustainable ecosystems? I mean, compared to, say, what happened in San Francisco or even in Israel, which seem to be very much the opposite, which are, you know, people with access to funds and ideas and innovation. Sure, sure. I think I think the, the way I look at it is that Singapore is kind of unique in the sense that given the way the country has grown up, it's kind of unique in its own uh, way. I mean, if you look at the Singapore startup ecosystem, right, I mean, the one thing I would definitely say that this government in Singapore is probably the most forward-looking government you'll find anywhere in the world, right? There's no doubt about that in terms of how they look at policies, how they look at um, how to create an ecosystem. The the challenge for Singapore is is how do you generate a level of risk-friendliness amongst its own population? That is the biggest challenge. It's not about, I mean, you can create all the infrastructure that you want. You can create the broad policy framework. You can create, um, you know, funding ecosystems, etc. But at the end of the day, for an ecosystem to really be big, uh, where it, it thrives on its own energy rather than the energy mm-hmm. being given by an outside source, for that to happen, I think, uh, it's going to take a long time. I mean, if you look at Israel, right, when Israel was developing the startup ecosystem, the government was significantly involved. I mean, uh, if I remember correctly, I think in the late in the early 90s, it was the government uh, which actually got involved in creating jobs for um, many of the um, uh, Israeli citizens out there. And uh, what has changed there is that since they spent so much given the geographical situation in which they were brought up and the amount of money they were spending on military technology, it created an ecosystem of its own among its people for people to come out of the military ecosystem into the commercial ecosystem. In Singapore, if you look at it, the uh, government has established many of the policies in terms of funding. Uh, I don't know if you're aware that, you know, the some of the early stage funding processes were pretty much uh, taken off from the Israeli ecosystem, like the uh, the NRF funding program, et cetera, et cetera. They were all uh, taken up with many tweaks from the ecosystem that was in Israel, right? And here, the challenge is that you have created an ecosystem. You're trying to throw 
capital around interesting pieces of technology which you think will lead Singapore to the future. But at the end of the day, for an ecosystem to flourish, you need to have fire in the belly. Mm. And I think that that, uh, the Singapore ecosystem is for homegrown individuals to effectively look at entrepreneurship as a natural way of uh, trying out things in life rather than uh, rather than something coerced into the system. I mean, for example, if you take India, right, uh, you know, there is a demographic time bomb there in the sense that, you know, you're going to have about 300 million people below the age of 35 by 2020. And there are not enough jobs. So entrepreneurship is like forced on you for many people, right? You have to try mm-hmm. something different because there no longer the Morgan Stanleys and the Goldman Sachs of the world are hiring thousands and hundreds of people anymore, right? It's over. The day of uh, Procter & Gamble, Unilever hiring hundreds and thousands of people is not going to happen. So in an environment where the younger generation uh, have no choice but to try to create their own what you call wealth rather than being part of a wealth creation machine, uh, they have to accommodate and be friendly with risk. And for that to happen, I think... Um, it has to be it has to be a situation wherein you know wherein uh, people have to say that look you try to different geography i think that for example for a lot of these smart kids who come out of nus and ntu etc they should just go out of the country spend some time outside singapore where there are much more problems much bigger problems and they can identify these problems to be solved and singapore has fewer problems to solve than indonesia malaysia thailand or india or anywhere in the west as well i think mm. So I think the challenge in Southeast Asian ecosystem, especially in Singapore, is to create the desire to be risk friendly. Whereas in places like Southeast Asia, I think most of the people are risk friendly. You know, they know that if they can't take risk, there's nothing much going to happen. Yeah. I think that's the biggest challenge here. Singapore is a great place from the infrastructure, the policy perspective, etc. But creating a homegrown talent of risk friendly young people, I think uh, that is going to be the biggest challenge for Singapore to effectively challenge San Francisco or anything along that. Mm. I mean, that is, there are no right or wrong answers to that. It's a very complicated question. It's a fascinating question for sure. Now, now that you, you bring up India, there's a word listeners may not be familiar with, but I'm sure you are familiar with it, Ramesh. It's Jugaad, which is a, yeah. an, an Indian term for, it's kind of sort of, you know, like not dirty, but innovation which is, I think it actually comes from the word where they, they took some half of a motorbike and half of some kind of cart and fixed the thing together and made this sort of innovative yeah. vehicle which farmers could use. But the, Jugard sort of is that sort of nece- necessary innovation, which is common in many parts of India where people just make things to fix a problem. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think Jugard, I mean, in, if I, I mean, there are people tend to use it in a kind of a negative connotation, but I think it's got a, the positive connotation uh, is significant in the sense that innovation in India is if you have a problem, solve it with the resources that you have currently rather than looking for something that you don't have. Right. Exactly. So it's more of fixing issues or problems with things that you have in your control rather than things which you don't have in your control. Or if you don't have it in control, find a way to figure out how you can get it into control. So it's more of a what you call as um, it all, it all kind of also links with uh, frugal innovation in the sense. Yeah, right. Uh, That's what came to my mind when you said that. And yeah. it also, I think it also links to that idea you're talking about, Ramesh, about fire in the belly. It's because it's got to be something that is, is a hunger for something or a need for something. 
And I know you say, you talk about Singapore as an example, being very different to Southeast Asia in general, but sort of on the doorstep. You know, young Singaporeans growing up now, I, they're, they're comfortable, aren't they? they? They don't need anything. They don't want anything because they have everything they need. You know, they'll never know what it is to not have food or, you know, not have a job or not have a house. Yeah. yeah. So how do you, how do you encourage entrepreneurship when, you know, a lot of the talk today is about that sort of culture that you find in Israel or to some extent in India or in the Valley where there's a real hunger and people innovate because they need to do things and they need to fix things and they create solutions because, you know, they have a real hunger to do that. Can you teach that? I think it's it can be taught, but it, uh, in in a way it can be taught if you actually you know force on it, uh, force on them in the sense that the way I look at it is that you know Singapore has got a fantastic you know you know at the macro level of the government level they have always figured out you know what do you call plans ten years down the line, twenty years down the line, and one of the solutions which I think is is actually possible is that if Singapore you know the government can say look. Any Singaporean who wants to explore the entrepreneurship ecosystem, uh, fully funded by government, wherein you go abroad, whether it is for the Valley or et cetera, et cetera, find a job or we'll help you find a job or start your own business anywhere. We will effectively fund you for going abroad and exploring the challenges in, in those geographies. Let's say if, you, if you're a NUS graduate and you want to, instead of going and taking a normal nine to five job, nothing wrong with that. But if you want to explore something totally different, we will, and, and that's in the entrepreneurship space, we will facilitate you for, we'll take care of you in terms of uh, some of the basic needs, financial needs for the next two years. You go and do whatever you want, whether you go to Europe, whether you go to US or whatever it is, and see if you can come back with some important learnings that you can translate it back to Singapore and get the industry going. I mean, that's one part of it, right? I mean, I think that's uh, that's something which can easily be done. The second part is obviously is uh, bringing in talent from different parts of the world which are really good at whatever they do, and trying to integrate with the Singapore ecosystem, which is which is much more challenging as well, uh, given that you have to figure out a way of translation of skill sets from the person who is coming here to the um, individual here. Uh, it's probably much more challenging than I think if you send somebody, you go and do whatever you want, figure out how the ecosystem works, get two or three learning pieces and come back and see if you can replicate in this part of the world. I think that's much more easier, I think, and much more beneficial because you also develop contacts in the new ecosystem and you can also effectively, um, what do you call, your learnings are more with you rather than trying to get learnings from someone else. Uh, I mean, there are no right answers, but given that the government is so much involved in building a so-called proper ecosystem, I think trying to get involved with universities, wherein you tell them after you graduate or in the last year, you know, you go abroad for two years, wherever you want, figure out a problem, solve it, come back, and we will look after you for the two years. Maybe it's a way of doing it. It may not be the right answer. But, you know, each each geography is is different, but uh, given the con- in the context of being such a small country, and the ability to uh, get things done, I think that's probably one of the alternatives that one can consider um, in terms of building some kind of entrepreneurial instinct in many of these individuals. I love that idea. I wish, wish that that became some kind of government program. That your suggestion about getting those young guys and girls straight out of university and if they choose to go off and 
put themselves in, a, in out of their yeah. comfort zone, really, into new, in a way, you know, yourself as well, Ramesh, you've, you've lived in not only just one place in India, but in many cities in India, you've lived in London, you've lived in the, the US, you've lived in Hong Kong and Singapore, every time you're stepping out your comfort zone. I think there's a lot of parallels between that sort of long-term travel yeah. and entrepreneurship, isn't there? Because, you know, you're dealing with being an outsider, not having a set of rules. You're yeah. dealing with having to deal with an environment which may be unfamiliar, but having faith that things are going to work out in the end. And that sort of maybe is the best training for potential entrepreneurs, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. The one thing, one interesting anecdote which I would share is um, – uh, I was one of the earliest investors in one of the accelerator programs in Singapore. You know, we were looking at, um, you know, all these cohorts that, uh, you know, that come out of these accelerator uh, uh, programs. And we looked at a portfolio of about whatever it is, 60 or 80 of these companies. And we were looking at, you know, we wanted to figure out what the hell happened to these uh, companies in terms of uh, mm. why have some failed, why have some survived still, why, you know, why are some of them doing well? And I think out of, you know, it's probably not a representative sample, but, one interesting thing came out, which was, I thought, key is that, uh, you know, out of the 80 odd companies, nearly 60 odd companies died over a period of time. Right. And we tried to figure out at that point of time, 20 were still surviving. So we were asking the guys who run the program, hey, what do you think is the common theme among these uh, among these survivors? And um, the common theme was at least one of the founders was big into reading fiction. Really, which is uh, now we try to figure out what does it mean. Right, basically means that you know if you are a founder, you know you have to really dream big and you have to think the impossible, dream mm. them because you meet hundreds of investors. They all say that your that your idea is not great or whatever it is. They are very polite with you, and effectively some of them may be even blunt with you and say your idea is rubbish. But your ability to dream and pursue your dream continuously, irrespective of what somebody else says, is very key. And you have to be a really big dreamer to dream the big thing. I mean, you mm. have to be a bit mad as well. You know, mm-hmm. most of the big entrepreneurs have a, some kind of idiosyncrasies in them, I would say. Right. Mm. And the second thing, which was also strange, is all at least one of the founders was big into gaming. Right. Mm. Uh, multiplayer games. So we're thinking, what, what does it bring to the table? Effectively, being involved in gaming effectively means your ability to pivot fast right, to yeah. get into revenue or a business model is very high. So you don't stick on an old problem. You don't go stick on an old problem and try 10 different solutions which doesn't, fur, which doesn't work. You try to figure out a solution which is quick, which fails fast, and you go move on to the next solution. And if the problem is, 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 is not solvable, you move on to another problem. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, for startups, pivoting is a big part of the business model. Like many of the startups have invested, they are no longer doing the same thing. They're doing totally different things. And the ability to pivot fast is one of the key things. And that's what playing multiplayer games brings about, I think. Mm. And the third thing, which, which was interesting as well, is it appeared at least one of the founder was an immigrant. Wow. Right? There you go. So there is an element of what you call as, um, you know, uh, being out of the box, as you mentioned, you know, being out of your comfort zone and being really what you call as a dreamer to pursue mm. many of these things, which are uh, where where there is no clear path. Right? Mm. That's fascinating. That insight, it would be if 
possible in the future, somebody to actually do that as a scientific study. Did, did those findings sort of challenge your own assumptions or did that sort of go with your gut feeling about what made a successful startup founder? You know, I think it's, uh, as a, I think as an investor or a founder, the way I look at these things is that what you think really doesn't matter because what matters is what the market thinks in terms of any product or idea, right? I mean, when you come as an investor to uh, any event, you want to remove all the baggage that you've had accumulated over the last 20, 25 years, Mm -hmm. and you want to look at it at a fresh pace. Because what you think was right is not necessarily right in the future. And uh, that's the biggest challenge that people like me have in terms of throwing down the baggage that we had and looking at things with a fresh perspective. And second thing, which which is, I think, important is that like all investment products, they you know you have this big disclaimer saying that past performance yeah. is uh, no guarantee for future <laughs> performance. I think um, if you have spent a significant amount of time in uh, very large organizations with significant amount of uh, uh, what do you call the uh, people doing work for you, uh, it, it becomes very tough for many of the founders to actually pivot immediately to where you are effectively the, you know, the doorman, the coffee mm. boy, everything else, mm. right? I think that's a big so a mental adjustment that you need to make. And I find that people who have been producer managers all their life are much better at entrepreneurship than pure managers, at least based on my empirical evidence. Yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, having worked in the large, you know, the large brands in the investment world or in the investment banks, I'm sure being of a, of a certain position, if your laptop broke, a guy from the IT department would show up and fix it within an hour, right? You know, but yeah. when you're an entrepreneur, you start up, found it, you're on your own. You have to do that. And you have to, like you say, be the doorman and everything. It's a mindset, isn't it? It's been absolutely fascinating that we've just, we've done a lot longer than I thought, 45 minutes. We did nearly an hour today, Ramesh. We were only just scratching the surface, I think, of the startup ecosystems in Asia. There's so much more to talk about. Really enjoyed your insights and it was, you know, thoroughly educational. Hey, where do people find out more about you, Ramesh? I'm sure people listening to this podcast would be interested in, you know, reading your background, reading your story, the projects you're involved in. You know, well, you know, you can put it on uh, LinkedIn and Facebook. You know, I'm not, I'm not a very, this thing on social media, but LinkedIn, LinkedIn will do, Facebook right? We'll, we'll put your LinkedIn is. details yeah. on the show notes so people can find you there and find out a bit more about you. Okay. That's Ramesh Raghavan, everybody. He's a board director, investment advisor in Singapore. And Ramesh, it'd be great to have you back on the show at some point in the future and give us an update. Keep us updated on your projects and what's going on. Will do. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.